This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guild. And by BrewGuru, a free smartphone app made by our friends at the American Homebrewers Association. BrewGuru helps beer lovers save money on beer and beer brewing supplies, and it serves up exclusive content from Zymergy Magazine and homebrewersassociation.org. BrewGuru is free for Android, iPhone, and iPad. Check it out. Why Yeast Laboratories has provided fresh, premium liquid yeast cultures worldwide since 1986. Choose from our product collection of ale, lager, German wheat, Belgian ale, wine, malolactic, or wild and sour strains for your next fermentation creation. We're here to help you ferment premium products like the professional. Why Yeast. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Hey everybody, welcome to a very special anniversary edition of Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham, and I'm utterly flabbergasted that we've made it one full year of podcasting. No kidding. All right, no at this kidding. point in time, I thought Denny was going to kill me for the amount of editing I've been making him do. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. We're getting there, though. All right. Yep. Together, we are the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, with 25 of the world's best homebrewers te teaching you their secret tips and tricks and exactly how to be an all-star. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with ways to check it out. All right, and on today's episode, well, you know, we know we have a usual format and we know we usually abandon it with utter abandon, and that's what we're doing today. We are going to take a real quick trip over to the pub because we have some things that, well, really, it's going to be timely to talk about. And then from there, we're going to go and revisit some of our favorite bits and pieces from our first year of experimental brewing. We hope that you enjoy uh, this sort of special episode and a uh, trip down memory lane. Yeah, and you know, when you get to be my age, memory is something you treasure. <laughs> well, when you get to be my age, you can't remember anything. <laughs> So, uh, before we do that, though, we want to talk to you about how you can support us. 
Uh, if you go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, you can click on the link for the American Homebrewers Association to join the AHA and get a subscription to Zymergy Magazine and uh, help support this killer hobby that we're all involved in. You can click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to Brew Your Own Magazine. And when you do either of those, we get a little bit of money back to help uh, support the podcast and keep continuing what we're doing. The other thing you can do is uh, click on the Patreon link and donate whatever amount of money you like to our charity. Uh, we choose different charities every six months, and for this period right now, the charity is the Children's Tumor Foundation, which supports research into the causes and treatment of pediatric neurofibromatosis. And even if you can't say it, it is still a great cause, and we would appreciate you helping us out with it. So... I guess what we need to do now is head over to the pub and uh, talk about a few things, and then we can take a stroll down memory lane, huh? I think so. It's time to chug a beer. <laughs> All right. We're going to walk over to the pub, and we will be right back. Okay, we've settled into the pub, we've ordered a couple beers, we're ready to talk about the beer life. Uh, what are you having today, Drew? Uh, I'm having a homebrew, but not mine. I'm having a, uh, last week I was up in Fargo and I was doing the Hoppy Halloween Challenge from the Prairie Homebrewing Companions, and on my way out, I got handed a bottle of a wheat wine made with a Belgian Trappish yeast uh, from Tom Rowan, who is one of the organizers and who is the guy who is responsible for getting me up there. And uh, take me around the lovely cities of Fargo and Moorhead, Minnesota. So, very delicious, uh, nice little sweetness to it. Uh, I think mostly from ethanol, but kind of a rich, raisiny type thing, which is perfect f for a day when you're sitting down and trying to remember everything that's happened over the past year. <laughs> no kidding. I'm drinking an Umbrella IPA from Pelican Brewing over on the Oregon coast. Uh, great, great brew pub and brewery, uh, consistently voted the most beautiful brew pub location in the United States, and it, uh, I haven't been to the mall, but it may very well be. This beer is made exclusively with Ella Hops, uh, an Australian variety with notes of passion fruit and mango, and a lot of the fruitiness that I don't normally care for, but boy, this beer, it is balanced beautifully. Uh, it's got nice bitterness uh, behind it to balance it out. A great, great single hop beer. Uh, I highly recommend it should you have a chance to try it. So two, th two thoughts come to mind. One, is it juicy? Uh, no. <laughs> and then the second one is, why am I suddenly hearing Rihanna in my head? I can't figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know why you're hearing Rihanna in your head, uh, and I'm not going to answer for what you hear in your head. Ella, Ella, Ella. All right. Well, hey. So why, why don't we get down to business? Because we got a lot. Yeah, of let's covered. let's do. All right. So now the first one is obviously uh, last episode we talked about the shockwave sent around the homebrewing world from uh, ZX Ventures, uh, aka a AB Ambev, buying out uh, Northern Brewer and Midwest Supplies. And we sat down and we've, uh, we were uh, puzzled by the whole thing. I think that was the primary upshot of what we came away yeah, with. right. A lot of uh, thoughts about uh, big data mining and sort of trend analysis and uh, whether or not there was any sort of marketing thing. And I've, 
saw some new things come up this week, and, and one thing that I totally forgot to mention the last time was, uh, so Colin Kaminsky, who formerly of downtown Joe's, or just about formerly of downtown Joe's in Napa, California, uh, wrote on Facebook, uh, they said, uh, AB has long sought to own businesses that allow them to understand the market better. They own barley fields, hop fields, distributors, and all other ancillary businesses that are involved in brewing. Before InBev, I was told I was told by owning a business, it allowed them to see actual profit margins and negotiate better contracts with the rest of their supply and distribution chain without triggering antitrust issues. I'm betting they're wanting more experience in the homebrew field. So that kind of goes into that same uh, big data idea, except for from the opposite side, where they want to kind of understand uh, the business implications of various pieces. Uh, but then there was also, on Reddit, there was a really interesting thread that popped up. Now, of course, this is Reddit, and I love Reddit, and I'm on Reddit all the time. But Reddit is the internet, and sometimes a little bit wild and woolly. And uh, a user there, who goes by the name of Superhuman05, posted a thread in the homebrewing subreddit about... Uh, ZX Ventures pitching ideas to homebrew clubs and posted an image taken off of Facebook or actually either Facebook or LinkedIn. No, that's, that's Facebook uh, from somebody who claims to be a marketing manager for, uh, or sorry, innovation brand manager. Let's make sure we get the title correct. Uh, that says they're working on startup concepts to enable homebrewers to share and sell their beer. The intention is to help homebrewers accelerate their craft if you're a homebrewer and interested, they gave a survey monkey link. And it's basically, it's a startup team from ZX Ventures that are looking to do some sort of craft brew, craft brew incubator using homebrewers as the source of recipes and ideas and, and brands. So the plot thickens, I think. Yeah, you know, and there's a whole bunch of tinfoil hat responses and stuff like that, you know, uh, and... I'm, I, I, you know, I, I want to hear more about this before I give it any credence whatsoever. Um, I, you know, enable homebrewers to share and sell their beer. Well, there's already uh, an organization out there doing that called Noble Brewer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, so I, you know, I don't know. It still doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, oh, I'm, I'm not claiming it's making any sense. I'm just claiming it, it, it's a chin scratcher. Yeah, well, I think it's still a chin scratcher, and I don't think this goes any further toward explaining it. Uh, you know, to to me, it's just more kind of like groundless speculation. Right, but uh, you know, still interesting to see. And this is also in light of their recent acquisition of Carbach, which they just announced out of Texas. So, yeesh, Jesus, how many yeah, how many you know brews what? do they need? Yeah, well, and I've been I've been thinking pretty soon we won't have to talk about this stuff anymore. We'll just put a scoreboard up on the website and, set, <laughs> and mark down another one every week. You know, there you go. another one bites the dust. It has been officially uh, one day since somebody fell. Yeah, All right, right. So it, I think the other thing that we want to revisit is something other than beer from uh, a few months back. Now uh, mm-hmm. we talked about James Townsend's on the 18th century cooking channel on YouTube, and as I seem to recall, Denny, you. It, you started watching it and we're really, really digging on it. Yeah, there's lots of there's lots of cool stuff there, man. They talk about brewing, they talk about cooking, they even talk about 18th century clothes, man. I I love the way the guy who's the host is always dressing up in those weird outfits. Yeah, well, and I can totally see you in some of those things too. Um, yeah, but I, I still I, I still have some of the originals left. I was going to say, uh, get it, break out your thread and needle. Um, 
but no, I did want to say that I think it started to spread around the other week, but I guess he took a tour of a working historical village in, uh, I think, Rochester, New York, upstate New York, and uh, that was founded by the owner, or sorry, the then president of Genesee Brewery, who are famous for making Jenny Cream Ale, one of the beers that got me through college. And in the midst of the brewery, or in the midst of the village, because it was started by a guy who owns and operates a brewery, there is actually an 18th century style brewery in it. And so what was really cool was they just did a whole video segment that was, hey, walk us through the brewing process at, you know, this 18th century brewery. And so they did. They, they showed the whole video. It's about eight, nine minutes long. But it's really cool to see some of the stuff that's involved in that period of time, like everything made of wood. Uh, the pumps are like wooden log pumps. The hoses are made of leather. Uh, there is nary a thing to be said about sanitation anywhere involved in the whole mix. Sure. Uh, and but it was just very very cool to see and sort of hearkening back to the idea that uh, sometimes we may take things a little a little too seriously with what we're doing because you're looking at what they're making and they were obviously making beer this, in this particular fashion but it's a really cool thing to see just to see the whole old fashioned way of doing things yeah yeah it, it really is and we'll put a link to that up on our website so that uh, you can all go check it out if you haven't already. It is definitely very cool, and uh, while we're putting links on the website, uh, we uh, got a message from our friend Larry Clauser, who was in the last episode talking about his Pineapple Express beer, and uh, he's going to send us the recipe for that because he's been getting so many emails from people asking about it, so, uh, so we'll have the recipe up for Larry's beer also so you can give it a try yourself. So. Oh, and hey, uh, you want to talk about uh, Jack Joyce? No, not really. <laughs> no, um, Jack Joyce uh, just gave a $70,000 grant. Actually, uh, Rogue, through the Jack Joyce Foundation, gave a $70,000 grant to the uh, Oregon State University Fermentation Sciences Program, which is very, very cool. Uh, I hope to be up there you know, with any luck by the end of this month to drop off some of my stuff for the uh, Oregon Hop and Brewing Archives. So, uh, you know, if, should you end up in Corvallis, there will be one more thing for you to ignore. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, at least so, you take, take the proper scope of view on it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So with the self-deprecation out of the way, what do you say we suck down these beers and uh, get on with our trip down memory lane? I think that sounds like a fine idea. Alrighty, we'll be right back with some uh, old shows to listen to once again. Never wait for fruit to be in season again. With Vintner's Harvest fruit purees and wine bases, you can enjoy consistent quality fruit which was picked at the peak of ripeness. F.H. Steinbart Company, the nation's oldest homebrew store, recommends grapefruit or tart cherry purees for your next sour or wild beer. So make sure to ask for them at your local homebrew supply store where Brewcraft USA products are sold. And remember, not all fruit purees are equal. If it's not in the Vintner's Harvest can, it's not the same.
So uh, we're going to start off today with uh, a clip from show number six, uh, where we uh, were discussing the results of our uh, yeast experiment comparing Y-Yeast 1056 with White Labs 001 with our good friend uh, Marshall Schott from Brewlosophy. Yeah, and I think the, uh, the important part about this is we tend to have a view of science as being sort of this crystalline perfect thing that comes up with yes no answers that are 100% certain and so I thought it was great that in our very first experiment we proved that science is dirty messy and often uncertain with mixed answers so why don't we hear what we talked about uh, speaking of interesting curiosities uh, th there was a real anomaly here that I think we want to uh, we want to talk about because uh, Things there was one particular batch that uh, was very different than the others. Yeah, so talking uh, talking through and before uh, before I say his name, uh, rest assured we cleared this with him. Uh, one of our <laughs> Igors, uh, Andy Turlington, uh, came back and reported that eleven out of eleven of his tasters correctly identified the different beers, but he said that's because his White Labs batch developed a phenol, a very very noticeable phenol that. Uh, he suspects it is because he was trying to turn the batch around uh, relatively quickly or much faster than he usually does. So, yeah, this... I, you know, and, and no, no offense to Andy, but uh, I don't think that probably had anything to do with it. But... 100% agree, Denny. Hey, Marshall, you are one smart dude. You know, what can I say? <laughs> I kiss your ass for good. Uh, you know. <laughs> Get a room, you two. Get a room. Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree, though. I, in my experience, and I, I brew an awful lot. Um, for better or for worse, and in my in my experience, phenols aren't necessarily as much as we've been uh, bred to believe that phenols are a component of uh, higher fermentation temps. I read what Andy wrote, and it sounds like he made uh, a fantastic uh, uh, Y yeast version of the beer. But uh, phenols, to me, are almost always a contamination issue. They they almost always come uh, from some sort of introduction of uh, of a contaminant of some sort, usually a, a wild yeast or a, or a you know. A, a microbe is um, some sort of bacteria. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm right. I'm right there with you on that one, buddy. So now I'm actually kind of glad that this happened on our very first experiment because this gets us to allow to or allows us to talk about something I think is rather important, which is uh, what happens when something goes terribly wrong, uh, and what does that mean about the validity of the data? So in this particular case. Do we accept these 11 correct identifications into the data set, or do we toss them on the idea that what was actually being uh, tested was not the actual question at hand? In this particular case, what Andy ended up testing was whether or not his tasters could detect a phenolic batch. To, to me, it's obvious. We got to toss them, man. These, this is not what we were going for. Um, something obviously went wrong. Uh, these do not, should not be included in the data set. Right, Marshall? So, oh, that's a leading question, counsel. Uh, I'm all for uh, reporting both sets of data because I don't like to, to, I don't like to toss what is actual, but, but I think it's important to recognize an anomaly for an anomaly and to parse out that data and to, and to give people the, uh, the option to kind of choose what they want. In my opinion, I, I'm 100% with Denny. It sounds to me like the 001 batch that uh, the Andy made probably was contaminated. And so um, what I did just for you guys was I ran 
our statistics that we use on uh, both sets of data. And I'm happy to share that with you. Please do. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and, and I don't, I don't know how deep we want to get into the arbitrariness of the P value. Um, (laughs) it's something that, it's something that I completely recognize and understand, but it's a standard that we like to use. Uh, it's a gauge and uh, it helps us to kind of, uh, Focus our thinking, at least. Well, so for um, for our listeners who may who this may be the first time they've ever heard of the p value. Yeah, can you go ahead and give them an explanation? Oh my god! I no, uh, that means and, how much you ha- that means how much you have to pee after you drink the beer, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, well, the the p value is it's basically just a probability that what? Oh my god! I suck at this. Um, the, it's the probability that what somebody is noticing that the, that the, uh, the amount that the observed, uh, I'm just going to read to you off of Wikipedia now because I'm terrible. <laughs> it's a function of the observed sample results that's used for testing a statistical hypothesis. So, um, it's the, the probability of obtaining a result equal to or more extreme than what's actually observed. Right. And, and so, I mean, talking in real terms, you know, like, <laughs> whenever you talk to statisticians, right? Yeah. If they're talking, Oh, Hey, you know, this thing has a probability of X, Y, Z that requires a very sort of large data set. What a P value really seems to be is a sort of a level of confidence that there is something here. That what you're observing is, is either true. It's cl- how close to truth what you're observing is. That's the best way I can think about it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's, it's, that number is just kind of invented by statisticians. And so there's a lot, you know, I don't know if it's a lot, but there's a few people out there who really, you know, hark on the fact that, well, this is arbitrary and it doesn't mean anything. And, and so, you know, well, that's fine. Well, but, uh, you know, as, as brewers, we, we should point out, just like we talked about in the first episode, you know, the P value was effectively invented by uh, William, William Seeley Gossett. That's a- right. AKA student who was brewmaster for Guinness. And we've been using it now in the brewing industry for almost 115 years. So, hey, whatever. It's been good enough for 115 years. Why break it? Hey, cheers, Drew. So uh, so let's uh, cut the suspense and tell people what the results are. Okay, let's do this. So the p-value, when including the 11 tasters that Andy Turlington, uh, uh, the all 11 who got it right, um, the participants that he was able to gather, the p-value on that is actually so low that I'm unable to. Uh, it's point zero zero. I'm actually trying to expand the. Uh, well, here while you expand, I'll give people the raw numbers uh, real quick. So, if you take the eleven, uh, the eleven errant phenolic batch tasters, we had seventy-five tasters. We had forty out of seventy-five, or fifty-three percent of the tasters, successfully identify the different beer. AKA they could pick out whichever one was different, whether it was a white labs beer or the white yeast beer. If you don't include those 11 tasters, then you had 29 of 64 tasters tasting on this particular question who were able to successfully identify the beer or about 45% success rate. That's right. So when we include the 11 who got it right, uh, Andy's data, we're at point zero 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 one. Which is extremely, I mean, if we're going to give a, uh, if we're going to say that you can measure the extremity of, of significance, it's very significant. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty obvious that there's a difference there. But when we take that away 
and this is the part that interests me. So when we minus the anomaly, if we're going to call it that, 29 out of 64 creates a p-value of 0.021, which is still pretty far under 0.05, which would suggest that there is a, a, a significant difference in distinguishability when presented for the triangle test. Right. And, and a way to think, a way for people to think about this is the reason why you do a triangle test is if you give somebody, if you give people just a random choice or, you know, like here are two glasses, you know, choose, uh, choose which one's better or choose which one's supposed to be, uh, you know, somehow the answer to the question you would expect randomly if there was no difference that 50% of the people would get it correct. Yeah. Uh, 33%. Well, yeah. when you do a triangle test and you have three right. choices, then yeah, you drop down to 33%. What we're seeing here, and it's very interesting, was yeah, you know, you're seeing that 45% when you don't include the the phenolic batch, or 53% when you do, and that to me, yeah, that says just like the p value does, there's a difference that people are finding. There's definitely something going on, yes. And it means so. that I was right all along, right? <laughs> of course, Daddy. No, it means that it means that there's data that indicates that maybe there's something there, but not that you're right. I refuse to admit to that. <laughs> and even when I'm right, he won't admit I'm right. Hell no. And there you have a really good example of uh, why you don't want beer drinkers talking about math. <laughs> I hope I hope it made some sense. We decided we put that clip up first uh, so that if you're drinking while you're listening to the podcast, you might have a chance uh, of it making sense to you. Yeah. And also the, the other thing about that clip is I love it when we have other people on the show, uh, like when we have Marshall and I think it adds a little extra energy to the show that makes the discussions more interesting. I always love having Marshall with us and uh, we'll be hearing more from him later today. But before that, we're going to uh, listen to a clip of our show where we talked to Lou Bryson about session beers. And I've got to say, this was a, especially a treat for me because uh, Lou was a real early influence when I started getting into uh, good beer and beer appreciation. And uh, it was it was a real treat to be able to talk to him finally. Yeah, and I, I love Lou. Lou, Lou is a, a great beer and whiskey person. So, yeah, this was definitely a, a conversation I was looking forward to having. I think this was a fun conversation. So let's take a listen to... Uh, our interview with Lou Bryson talking about session beers and corgis. Lou Bryson, it is a great pleasure to have you with us today. Fun to be here. Looking forward <laughs> to it. Well, we we hope it's going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, let's uh, so let's start with the important question. Let's talk corgis. Aren't they awesome? <laughs> They're the best. They're the best. The uh, <laughs> the biggest little dog there is. The cl uh, the clown princes of the dog world. Yeah. Uh, now, I I will admit I I, I don't actually uh, have a full blooded corgi. I have a chorgi, but she's uh, sitting about uh, six feet to my left, uh, passed out with the tongue fully stuck out. Of course. <laughs> I have two. I, I have a uh, a um, a tricolored girl and a uh, a regular uh, red. Uh, boy, he's a big one. Though. He's like a forty-four pound. Oh yeah, no, that is big. Uh, yeah, my my little girl is a sixteen pounder. Yeah, yeah, that's more normal. <laughs> <laughs> really, man, I can hardly imagine a forty-four pound corgi. Yeah, and the worst thing is he's really a lap dog. He loves getting up in your lap, and he takes all of it. <laughs> <laughs> God. 
Well, and, and, and of course, uh, corgis are notorious herders, so at 44 pounds, he's got to be able to put some weight behind you. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't nip, but he uh. does shove. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk session... Let's let's talk session beer a little bit here, Lou. And okay. Tell us tell us about this whole session beer day concept. Um, it was something. Well, I've been a kind of championing session beer since uh, I guess about two thousand seven. Um, all grew out of a conversation I had with uh, Bill Kovaleski at Victory Brewing. Um, I was given Bill crap about all the odd beers that brewers make. The you know the I don't know what, like Russian Imperial Stouts with uh, Citra hops and Belgian yeast and just doing weird crap and, you know, stuff that seems normal now. But, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, all these one-off beers and you got to make it bigger, you got to do this. And he's like, dude, it's your fault. <laughs> it's my fault. He's like, not you. It's beer writers. He says, you guys don't write about well, you know, when we make our thousandth batch of brown ale, you don't care about that. Nobody cares about that. There's not a story there. So he said, you guys only want to write about the weird stuff. I'm like, you know, he's right. <laughs> so at first I decided I was just going to get more attention for um, the everyday beers. And then I refined that and decided, you know, these beers keep beers keep getting bigger and bigger in craft I kind of want to get some attention for the smaller beers, the ones that, uh, the ones you can sit down and drink. The more I looked into it, the more I learned about the, uh, you know, the, the English tradition of session beers and the, the Czech tradition of the, uh, Desitka, the 10 degree and lower beers. Um, the, I mean, there's a, a small German tradition of, of much lower alcohol beers, to be honest. Um, most Germans, <laughs> they don't really have a lot of time for anything under 5%. But, um, and, you know, the whole uh, Belgian Lambics and the Toffel beer, there's a variety of uh, cultures out there that accept these lower alcohol beers, and they don't have to be, I mean, <laughs> you could argue that American beer culture already had it all, in all the light beers, but I wanted something with some flavor to it, so I started uh, supporting that and, and writing about it, and it I mean, it picked up immediately, um, mostly with people arguing, but a fair number of people uh, supporting it. And, oh, I can't remember if it was three years ago or four years ago, about, oh, it was less than three weeks before the day we picked for it, April 7th. Um, I was just like, you know what? Let's just make a session beer day. And decided on April 7th because it was... Uh, what they call Little Repeal Day, when uh, um, 3-2 beer was made legal uh, in before actual full prohibition was, was repealed mm -hmm. um, back in 1934. And uh, 34, 33, 33. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. Um, but that was the day we were allowed to have lighter alcohol beer. So I thought that would be a good day for it. And... Um, you know, for only having 17 days to put it together, we had we had chatter about it literally around the world. I had this uh, picture somebody took of a uh, a bar in Parma, Italy, with a session beer project thing posted up on the thing session beer day. I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> so um, it's uh, 
it's kind of waxed and waned with uh, the amount of time I've able, been able to put into it and push it. But I'm hoping to do a. Uh, we are, we've already started this year, and I'm hoping to get uh, more done this year because I'm uh, I'm freelance again. So, I mean, it is catching on. You know, um, somebody asked me, um, you know, what what evidence do you have? I'm like, well, you know, it doesn't completely fit my definition, but Founders All Day IPA. I mean, right. You know, Founders was a big beer brewery, and they did that as a one-off. And within four months, they're like, "We're going year-round with this," and now it's their biggest seller. Yeah, and yeah, and and I'm I'm pretty much uh, a real disbeliever in session IPA. It just you know went an oxymoron. But damn, that I took over the category too. And it's like that's all people think session is now. Yeah, I know. And to tell you the truth, the founders is one of the few that I've found that I I really do enjoy. Uh, my my personal project for the last year has been developing what I'm calling a, an American mild, which is. Uh, you know, kind of like some of the qualities of an English mild, but using all American ingredients. And okay. It, it ain't easy, man, because it doesn't seem like there's a lot of domestic ingredients that were really designed with that in mind. I'm having, I'm having trouble coming up with a beer that actually has flavor to it. Yes. Yeah, uh, it's not easy. So Session Beer Day is April 7th. Is that the date, Stu? Yes. Okay. Yes. Great. And I'm actually kind of pleased that it's a weekday, because I think it's best at a weekday. Yeah, well, it makes sense. It's the, the perfect time to have a session. Exactly. You know. Huh. Yeah. Save, save the big beers for the weekend when you can uh, when you can afford to have the couch time. Uh, drink the session beers during the week when you need to be normal. Yeah, moving around. So, how do you define a yeah. session beer? I um, I, I to be honest, I came up with a completely arbitrary definition, but I defend that by saying pretty much any definition of session beer is completely arbitrary. <laughs> um, when you get right down to yeah, it, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, um, so what I did was uh, I decided 4.5% because it was significantly lower than 5%. Given, given 5% is about normal, uh, just judging off you know what the biggest selling beers around the world were. Um, so I wanted to make it at least 10% less. Uh, I wanted a beer that uh, you could drink several of in... in you know, in, in uh, what, following order, you know, at a, at a setting uh, without getting bored with it or without being overwhelmed by it. Because, I mean, there are some uh, real, I mean, like Berliner Weiss, okay, I can do a session with Berliner Weiss, but a lot of people would find that a little rough, having a, a beer that sour uh, and having four of them, for instance. Um, you know, it's something that you can drink several of and still be interested in them and yet not so overwhelming that they take over the conversation. I mean, I, the thing I always em, envision it as, card-playing beer. Oh, yeah. yeah they sit around, uh, sitting around the table. Well, because, I mean, that plays into, you know, sort of the traditional British notion of a session, right? You know, every, you know sitting, sitting around the pub and everybody has to buy a round, so you need to have something that everybody can drink and not fall over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you don't want to get knee walking, and you don't I, – I mean, I, for one, don't – because that was where it first came out. We were kind of sitting around a table – oh, my God, this must have been back in, like, 92, 93. And, uh, and we just kept – I was at John Hansel's house, and the guy does uh, Malt Advocate – or Whiskey Advocate now. And it was a beer magazine. They did, so he's cracking stuff out of his basement, and it's just one fantastic beer after another – 
and I'm like thinking to myself, I know we have other things to talk about. What we need is some beer that's good, but doesn't grab you by the throat and say, talk about me, because I'm so fantastic. I just want a beer that's really good, but not dominant. Right. I don't want to be able to have a feel. I mean, the first time I came across that, I was at uh, Standard Tap in Philadelphia. It's a bar that does only draft, and they do uh, only local. Local being defined as about 100 miles. And they had the new Yards Philadelphia Pale Ale on. Uh, I'm looking through this list, and there were about five beers on there I wanted to try. So I figure, well, you know, the, the Pale Ale's a lower alcohol. I'll have it first. <laughs> I had five of them. I, it was so good. I just like, <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to stick with this. And that's, you know, I love that. And it and it is, it's it's four and a half percent. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, man, but I find that the older I get, the less tolerance I have for really strong beers. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do not drink them as often at all anymore. Yeah, there was there was a time when I didn't have anything under eight and a half percent on tap here, and these days, if it goes over six, uh, it, it just you know is a real rare occasion. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm similar. I'm I'm about there with seven. It's about seven percent for me. I'm a I'm a big guy though. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, it, doesn't, it doesn't hit me quite as hard, but yeah, I mean, otherwise, I mean, I still remember something. Uh, Hugh Sisson at Clipper City said one time, he says, you know, I really like my barley wine, but if I, I don't get to go out that often because I'm always doing promotions and work. So if I get to go out and I have two barley wines, I'm done. Right. Yeah. You know, the end of the evening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, and that's, that's exactly the way I am. Uh, plus, I live you know, way, way out of town in the sticks. And if I go into town and drink a couple strong beers, then it makes driving home really difficult, too. Yeah. Why do you think people have been so resistant to to lower alcohol beers? Why do you think they haven't caught on as much as some of the the higher alcohol? I actually alcohol? find that going away pretty quickly recently, like in the last year and a half. I mean, up till then, I was you know like, oh god, we were getting getting uh, hassled about it all the time. Um, you know, I remember um, there was a local fest in a small town outside of uh, Philly, Kennett Square. does a really good annual beer festival. It's a fundraiser for the town. And uh, they have a VIP section that's always focused on a type of beer. You know, one year it'll be uh, like a double IPA or an Imperial Stout or a Sour or whatever. And, I mean, way ahead, like 2008, 2009, the organizer, a friend of mine, comes to me and is like, we're going to do session beer. I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah. So... It was all four and a half and under, and some of them ran out, but he was still getting people coming up to him and complaining because they bought a VIP ticket and hadn't really looked at what it was, and they felt that they were getting ripped off. And Yeah, it, se it seems like they're, they're a little bit that macho attitude. Well, you know, I mean, I, this is one of the things that keeps coming up when I, when I keep thinking and writing about session beer. So if you feel that way, what exactly, why are you drinking? You know? Ah, uh, yes. Wise words from Mr. Bryson there. Uh, boy, that was a fun conversation, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. And any time that I think you can talk about uh, corgis, the better. Corgis and session beer all in one phone call, man. Yeah, well, and I will, I will say, I thought one of the best upshots of that conversation was 
you know, we posted session beer articles about how to do session beers and like got gathered together like 14 different recipes for session beer. And we got great response to that and people really dug into it. And to my mind, I really hope that, you know, next year when session beer rolls around or session beer day rolls around, that we'll be right back at it again. We'll bring some more recipes and this time we'll get them out there ahead to everybody. And we can actually have a worldwide session beer party of homebrew. Boy, that would be great, man. Uh, okay, guys, so there's something you can look forward to. We will be promoting Session Beer Day well in advance, and uh, you can make your session beers, and uh, maybe we'll all do an on-air toast together during the show. Next, we go to episode 12 uh, in a, and a little section that comes from our, our Q&A uh, section of the podcast. Uh, we get a lot of questions. People write in to us looking to us to be able to answer their questions. And admittedly, as we said at the beginning of the show, we have brewed a lot of beer and uh, have a lot of experience with things. But you know what? This is a great example of us not knowing everything. Not that I think either one of us would ever claim to. Uh, we got a question from a listener about diastatic power in hops. And our initial reaction was, what? Uh, so we dug into it a bit. It was, it was pretty interesting, huh? It was funny because, yeah, my first reaction was, what the hell are you talking about? And fortunately, I, I stopped myself and went and did some research and was utterly fascinated by it. And I think this is also a topic that we're going to have to revisit because there's even more information out there about it so let's take let's take a listen to uh, the question about the diastatic power of hops and listen to denny and drew actually learning something <laughs> uh yes it's question and answer time with denny and drew uh and it's gonna be a wild and wacky day because we have some interesting interesting questions and came up with some interesting data when we were trying to answer them. So. Drew is going to take our first question today, which comes from Gary Jones in England. Wow. I'm impressed. Go for it. Drew. Well, yeah. So, well, Gary was the one who uh, had the previous comment about uh, session beer and weight loss uh, all the way back there at the beginning of the show, if you can remember back that long ago. Uh, and he wrote in and God, I love the fact that this question actually made me stop and think. Uh, so he writes, I have been experimenting with session beer brewing, and I have a question. One of the keys to a nice session beer is to get some body and mouthfeel into the beer. I have a batch of Drew's Oat Mild in the fermenter at the moment to try. Awesome. Love that beer. But I read on a forum post recently that dry hopping session beers can strip them of some of their body because the process reintroduces some diastatic enzymes to the beer. Have you heard of this? Is there any evidence for it? And if so, what's the scientific basis for diastatic activity being introduced or prompted by dry hopping? All right. Now, this question was awesome because Gary sent this in to us uh, earlier this week. And when I read it, my I had that knee-jerk reaction that, you know, tend to do because, you know, it's like, oh, I've read a lot of things about homebrew. I know the answers to all this sort of stuff. And my immediate answer was, what? No. There's no way that's a thing. Yeah, I had the same reaction. Yeah. And so we actually, uh, we asked Gary from, for some additional information. He gave us the homebrew shop uh, column that, that he found this information in. And so even after reading that, I was like, no, homebrew shops spreading bad, bad information, bad homebrew shops, bad homebrew shops. 
Um, and it literally did go that way. And I think Denny was in on that train as well. That's until right. Just recently. So, uh, we, uh, we started to do some research because I wanted to, uh, we want to make sure that when we're giving you guys answers, if it's not something that we're 120% sure of, and particularly if it's something that makes us stop and have that reaction of, huh? Huh? No. Uh, that we do actually have some foundation for what we're talking about. So, and I think I think went. this is a, a a good point to give a, a a big shout out to Jared Runyon at Brewcraft, who uh, actually turned us on to some of the info that we're going to be sharing with you guys today. Yeah, so we we reached out because you know this is one of the great things that that we can do is if we have enough lead time, we can reach out to a lot of the people that we know and say, uh, hey, does anybody know anything about this? Have you heard anything about this? Particularly on something as weird as this, and so. As we started to do research, one of the things that Jared pulled up was a paper from the Institute of Brewing Research Scheme in 1941, February of 1941, from a British scientific journal. The diastatic activity of hops together with a note of maltase in hops. So and we went, huh? Yeah. So it turns out that there is actually something here. And it's kind of cool. Hops as a plant do actually carry a multi-diastatic uh, power. Uh, now, this paper was from 1941. Uh, I haven't been able to find a lot of more recent research about it in our in our brief little runaround trying to figure it out. But if you read the activity, and uh, I'll give you guys the a link to the paper in the podcast description, but it's called The Diastatic Activity of Hops Together with a Note on Maltase and Hops from J. Janicki, uh, W.V. Kostanth, uh, A. Parker, and T.K. Walker. And they talked about, if, from the point of view of 1939, that 46 years prior, uh, two scientists, Brown and Morris, had demonstrated the presence of diastase in hops. Uh, and no additional research had really been done about it. So it turns out that, yes, there is a diastatic power and effect of dry hopping from hops added post-wort production, so aka post-boil, because uh, hops that go through a boil or a mash they'll have this diastase that they have in them uh, denatured, right? You know, the boil will kill all this off. So it wouldn't have an impact. But it turns out if you do add hops into uh, the wort after it's cooled, they can possibly have an impact. But, and here's a big but, because we started to run through it. You read through the experiments that these guys did, and they did uh, a number of experiments to demonstrate, yes, there is diastase in, in the hops, not as much as what you find in, say, barley, Thank God. Uh, but it turns out there's sort of a, a, a double whammy effect that's happening here. This is most prevalent in hops that are seeded, that they still have the seeds. So uh, trying to see here, just says here that uh, seedless hops showed less sacrificing activity than seeded hops, right? So it, right, and, I, and it's important. it's important to keep in mind that when this was done 70-some years ago, most of the hops around were English, and most of those hops had seeds. So, yeah. you know, that was and, a much more common situation than we see now. Right. I mean, and just and just like uh, the growers of hops' favorite cousin uh, that's being legalized in a lot of states uh, have figured out how to make more seedless varieties so you're not getting a bag of seeds and stems, hop manufacturers, hop growers finally started to figure this trick out, too, because there are problems to this. Uh, it used to be until about the 1950s that a lot of brewers actually liked to use seeded hops because of additional uh, polyphenols and tannin compounds and bittering compounds that they picked up from them. 
but afterwards, because of the fact that it showed that uh, seeds have a drastically negative impact on storage and the ability for you to keep these things around for a long period of time, growers began to uh, focus on producing seedless varieties and seedless uh, growing methodologies. So that's why we do everything from rhizomes nowadays, uh, cloning, and also for being able to select out male and female plants and only keep the females around. Uh, but yeah, uh, so it was more, more prevalent in seeded hops than seedless hops, which is probably part of a reason why this was written in a UK homebrew uh, supply store uh, notice and not something that any of us here in America that we had talked to had ever heard about. So the, these guys did a lot of experiments. Uh, one of the things that they showed was that if you have hops and the hop tannins, so all those complex polyphenols that are in the hops, they actually interfere with the sacrification process that you'll get from the hops. So if you have enough tannin and you don't find a way to bind it up, uh, you get a much lower impact. That's probably part of the reason why the seeded hops uh, work so, uh, so much more than the seedless hops do. Uh, and so if you walk through their experiments, you'll see that a lot of their experiments are starting with the idea of using uh, peptone, for instance, to bind up the tannin so that they could really drive home the effect of the sacrification uh, enzymes in the hops. Right. So... Having said all that, what do we think? Do we think that there's a real reason to worry about this? And part of it would be, if you're in a place that has seeded hops, uh, we heard from, uh, uh, Jared also pulled up uh, information from uh, Terry Ferendorf, who, if you don't know her, she is incredibly awesome. Uh, one of the founders of the Pink Boots Society. Uh, longtime brewer, knows a lot about things. And uh, when she was asked about this, she said that uh, traditional UK hops uh, and what this guy might uh, be regularly using are lousy with seeds. And so it, this may be one of those across the pond versus this side of the pond uh, ingredient difference differences that we're seeing, because we really don't see that problem. I've never seen a craft brewer in the U.S. ever talk about trying to worry about their final gravity because of uh, their dry hopping. And trust me, we dry hop the ever living hell out of everything. Well, and another British uh uh, brewer, uh, former professional brewer turned uh, a home brewer experiment over there on port66.co.uk. Uh, he was talking about, uh, he also figured that there might be an impact from the fact that we use a lot of caramalt and carapils uh, in the beers. Uh, I'm a little less certain about that. I would actually guess that there's probably more of a worry uh, from adding hops into uh, the secondary and actually stirring up the activity of the uh, activity of the fermenter again. And, and I, I've, I've just got to say that this is one of those things that may be theoretically possible, but uh, we have yet to see any practical evidence of it really happening. Uh, so unless you're using hops that are three quarters seeds to leaf, or you're making an extract with your hops using peptone, I really don't think in a practical sense you have anything to worry about. Yeah, and I also reached out to uh, one of my favorite people, John Palmer, and I'd asked him if he'd ever heard about this and gave him a link to the paper. And uh, his reaction was, huh, which <laughs> is great. And yeah. uh, he he kind of agreed with me that uh, more than likely what we're what would be a more likely impact than a sort of sacrification enzymes from the hops, uh, particularly modern seedless hops, is that we're seeing sort of the mixing from the the hops being added in, oxygen coming out from uh, within the hop pellets themselves, and all of that kind of reactivating 
uh, your yeast and kind of kicking off a little bit more fermentation. If, if, if it truly is. I mean, a lot of people, when they add dry hops to a beer, see bubbles start to form in the beer, and those bubbles are nothing more than uh, just CO2 coming out of solution because of the mm-hmm. nucleation sites on the hops. So the, the question becomes, you know, is there a measured effect on the beer, or is this just an observation of seeing bubbles and somebody jumping to the conclusion that there's fermentation going on? Yeah. We don't know, uh, and we're going to keep looking into this, and we'll, we'll keep you informed about any more research that, uh, that we come up with uh, one way or the other on this subject. Well, so, and, I, and, and before we leave it, I just really want to say, wow. I'm not kidding when I say I like a question that comes in like that that makes me go, uh, 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 what? Yeah, the questions that that, that makes you question what you th- what you thought you knew, you know. Uh, and I I appreciate uh, Jared tossing us the research to get us going on this line of of questionings. So uh, interesting, huh, man? Denny and Drew get smarter. Yeah, it, and that was really really fascinating. And we've actually gotten some feedback since then. Uh, just uh, last week, actually, we got a feedback from a listener, uh, Leandra Miners, who uh, started to do some research into this as well and dug up a couple more uh, finds and said that even in the UK now, uh, even though the the growers have cleaned up the hops largely, there is still uh, apparently a, a, a portion of the hop crop there that is seeded, according to the British Hop Association. And uh, largely because there are wild hops all over the place, so you can't really ever clear fields of male plants uh, far enough. And that in the U.S., uh, it says here uh, from the author uh, of Hops, uh, Nev, he says, uh, brewing value of both, uh, no conclusive advantages or disadvantages, and indicated in the book that the U.S. can have a seedless, a seedless hop crop can still have about 3% seed content. Yeah, when I was uh, talking to a few people up in Yakima about this, uh, I kind of found out that uh, seeded hops are a lot more prevalent than I had uh, imagined that they were. So, Next, we jump to episode 23, where I talk to uh, Russell Everett of Bainbridge Brewing. Russell is the brewmaster and founder of Bainbridge Brewing. Uh, I was up there doing some book signings, doing some family visiting, stuff like that. And uh, while I was there, I had a chance to sit down and talk to him. And uh, Russell has some recipes that I think would uh, would kind of like make you proud, man. Yeah, I, I, trust me, I'm, I, I'm digging it. Yeah, I mean, and especially the stout noodles. I've never seen you do stout noodles, and I want to see that happen. All right, I've been challenged. I shall do it. So here we go. Here's my conversation with Russell Everett from Bainbridge Brewing. So what is the most unusual beery thing you've done? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I don't know if you know about a Strange Brew Fest in Port Townsend. Uh, right? I, actually, uh, I do know about it because I was invited to go this year, but I couldn't make it. All right, well, I highly suggest you and anyone listening, go, go, absolutely. Uh, it's my favorite beer festival of the year. Um, it's in Port Townsend, Washington, in the, the last weekend in January every year. Um, and it's insane. Uh, they basically challenge all the brewers just to make whatever they want, and it wow. has to be weird. Uh, so I've spent four years of going to this thing now trying to win it, and we finally did win the strangest beer last uh, last uh, right in, G- in January this year. Um, so really? So, and, and what was it? So uh, it was a beer we called... Uh, 
Uh, how are you with, yeah, well, actually, if you just asked me what my favorite swear word is, uh, so we called it, it, let's go to Strange Brew, uh, so like, uh, but spelled like uh, Phuket, Thailand. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, so it's Phuket, let's go to Strange Brew. Uh, so then people spent the whole time ordering a it, uh, which was cool. Um, That's great. But we, we took our Eagle Harbor IPA, our year-round IPA, and I made a, a Thai-infused simple syrup with mm -hmm. uh, ginger and galangal and lemongrass and uh, palm sugar and lime juice. And, um, made this really, really potent simple syrup. So we got a spike of that. So I threw a lot of those like Thai tropical flavors in there. Um, and then I took our stout and mixed it with some agar, uh, wow. heated it up, and then used a, a syringe to shoot it into six foot lengths of silicon tubing, and then dunked it in an ice bath, and then used a, I jerry-rigged our air compressor to make like an air gun. And uh, so we just hooked it up and just hit it with compressed air, and it shot out these six foot long gelled beer noodles. Um, they were literally just stout and agar. Uh, and it made these these crazy noodles. Uh, so you got noodles in your glass that were literally just beer, and then we garnished it with some cilantro, and then I put a bottle of uh, sriracha out there. You can, you can spice it. I think that Drew and I have just lost the title of weirdest yeah. beer ever. Uh, it's, garnish is important. That's one thing I learned uh, I learned at Strange Brew. Uh, we, made, we made a beer that was brewed with squid ink one year. Um... That's the first place where I was sitting there. It was, I come up with my best ideas in the shower. And so I was standing in the shower one day thinking about um, alternate sources of starch for a beer. And I was thinking about corn. And I was like, all right, we could do like a, some sort of cream ale kind of thing. And I was like, well, where can I get corn? And I was thinking like, well, you know, corn has to be pre-gelatinized before you can use it. So you have to cook it. You can do like cereal mash. And then I was like, well, if I use pre-cooked corn, where can get... I was like, oh, I could just use tortilla chips. And then I was like, I could use Doritos. <laughs> So we uh, we made a, a yeah we made a beer called Beeritos. It's uh, we made it every year now because people demand it. Uh, wow. It's thirty three percent Cool Ranch Doritos. Does that does the Cool we, Ranch flavor come through? Yeah, we made we made nacho cheese one year and it just wasn't as good. And if you think about it, like nacho cheese is sort of a generic kind of cheesy, crunchy, right. salty, and it's more about the more about the salt and the texture for that. Right. Whereas, like, nothing tastes like Cool Ranch Doritos. No, but that's Cool true. Ranch Doritos. Like, ranch doesn't taste like Cool Ranch <laughs> no, Doritos. No, no, like, It better taste like anything in the yeah, natural it's, world. It's a super specific flavor, and it really comes through. Uh, surprisingly, comes through. And they went um, into the mash, I assume? So, yeah, we just basically just put... I go to Safeway and, like, unload the entire aisle of, like, party bags of Cool Ranch Doritos. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, last year, the, the Frito-Lay, like, reps were there, like, stocking the shelves. And I just, like, walked in and, like, unloaded it. <laughs> and, and they looked over, like, what, what are you doing? Having a hell of a party. They're like, well, someone likes Doritos. And I told, I told them what I was doing with it. I thought that was fantastic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's literally just, like, some two-row, you know, base malt and Doritos and a little bit of, I think, a little bit of acid malt just to adjust pH. Right. Um, and then, yeah, a little bit of Cascade, and that's it. Wow. It's a little cream ale, and uh, we garnish it with a Dorito on top because, again, garnish is important, right? <laughs> you know, Drew and I uh, made a uh, clam chowder saison a couple of years <laughs> yeah, ago. Yeah, that's in my alley. Uh, yeah, I'll have to send you the recipe <laughs> for it because I think you could really do it justice. But I think you may have come up with weirder <laughs> shit than we did. Yeah. I didn't think there was much weirder. We, I actually have a picture of John Palmer pouring potato flakes into the mash. Oh. He, 
I was on my way to Brazil and I stopped and Drew and I were going down there to yeah. speak. So I stopped in Pasadena at his place to brew and Palmer came over to help us. So I have this picture of him pouring the mashed potatoes into the Ooh, mash with the clam chowder yeah. saison. And uh, that's going to be uh, blackmail material. I was going to say, that seems like a, a bit of a texture nightmare. I can imagine it being. Uh, it, was it, it actually was worked it sort out, of thick. It, it worked out surprisingly well. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> considering we had no idea what the hell we were doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's advice to anyone. Like, if think about, like, think about the, the reason why you're adding something to beer, right? Why do we add corn, right? Well, because we can get, you know, eventually we can get those starches to turn into sugars that we can make beer out yeah. of, right? So what are alternate sources, right? You know, I think my favorite part of that whole interview was where he said, we tried the nacho cheese, but it didn't turn out as well as the Cool Ranch. Well, and I can totally believe it, you know, because to his point, yeah, nacho cheese is just kind of a salty, generic cheese flavor. But Cool Ranch has all that herb character. So it's just kind of like what we did with the Saison, where herbs carry across and they actually do add something to a beer. So uh, it sounds like you're going to have to make it up for the Strange Brew Festival one of these days. I, I Yeah, I totally think I'm going to have to. And now I'm thinking, okay, so stout noodles... What can I do with that concept? How can I take it farther? And now part of me wants to figure out, because I mean, really, the stout noodles are effectively beer jello shots, just in tubular form. So now I'm thinking I have to figure out how to make something like a cheesecake. Oh, that would be interesting, huh? Okay. Hmm. So uh, the next the next clip comes from uh, episode number eighteen, and it's an experiment we did that is uh, dear to Drew's heart about saison uh, yeast. Yeah, and uh, you know I was really looking forward to seeing us get some results out of this, and I think we had some really clear results. But of course, the public picture is a little muddied thanks to our guest. Yeah, yeah, Marshall uh, Marshall was being difficult on this one, wasn't he? Damn it. <laughs> okay, so we're going to listen now to us talking about Saison stall uh, experiment and uh, what you can do about it and whether or not Marshall screwed it up. So uh, tell me about the, uh, the fermentation. Sure, yeah. So um, I split that into two, two and a half gallon carboys. One of them... Uh, put in an S-lock bubbler. The other one was left open with a loose foil cap. Um, pitched them both about uh, 64 degrees, I think, and um, just let it kind of rock at room temperature. It was in the 60s, I think it went up probably low 70s in the first three days. Yeah. And let's see. I checked the gravities uh, day three after it started seemed, seemed like it started to slow down at day three. And then they were both at 1036 from 1056 starting. Okay. And uh, both proceeding pretty similarly at that point. Um, day 10, checked them again, and the one with the bubbler was at 1030. One uh, open with the foil was at ten twenty four. So, whoa! So that was at day ten. Day ten, yeah. So you were seeing a really big difference just a week and a half in. Yeah, which surprised me. I came into this thinking it was uh, bogus. <laughs> Hear that, Drew? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, 
I mean, I, I know that Drew has done this often enough that he was pretty certain of the results. So uh, I, I'm glad that we don't have to tell him that he's full of it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it just didn't make a lot of sense to me that there's not that much pressure in a bubbler, but I guess the CO2 is scrubbing out more easily if it's open. My guess. Um. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a... An interesting thing, from your point of view as a chemist, can you think of anything that is causing this? I think it, maybe the yeast is just sensitive to CO2, and when it's open, you're getting kind of more movement in there, the CO2 coming out more easily. Uh huh. Um, not sure if that's right or not. So what was the final gravity on both of them? Okay, so I kept checking these after a while. And I started swirling after 10 days to get the yeast kind of, both get the yeast in suspension and to help the CO2 come out. Uh-huh. And, okay, day 22, we're still plugging along. The With the bubbler, now we're down to 1028, dropped a couple points. But with the open one, we're down to 1006. Wow, 22 and, points difference? Yeah, yeah. And that was uh, three weeks. Whoa. And did you just make one starter and divide it between the two batches, or did you make two starters, or how did you do that? Um, I did not make a starter. I okay. just I poured the uh, yeast into a grad cylinder mm -hmm. and poured half into each fermenter. Okay. Okay. And uh, so then we so then you just split one one smack pack between the the two fermenters, right? Right. So then we didn't have to uh, to worry about different day codes and stuff. And no, uh, knowing what you do and how you do things, I'm going to trust that uh, that you got the yeast divided pretty evenly. Yeah, yeah. We use the graduated cylinders. So. <laughs> You you have equipment far beyond what the average home brewer uses. <laughs> so, and okay, so the and what about the the taste of the final batches? So the the one that dried out, the open one, I kegged that up. It tastes great, and I worried maybe it was infection that caused it to drop. Uh, it's clearly not infected. It, it tastes great. It's similar to Dupont Saison, right? Um, the one with the bubbler, that now is at six or seven weeks. I'm still working on it. Uh, <laughs> I left the bubbler on. I tried heating it uh, in the 90s for about a week. Right. That didn't drop at all during that period. Um, and then uh, left it about two or three weeks after that, just at room temperature, and it's down to about 1020 now. So it is still going. Wow, and that's interesting. Just the taste from the samplers—it uh, tastes great. A little, <laughs> little sweet, but I, I'm just going to let it, let it yeah. go. So, uh, based on this, uh, when you make saisons in the future, will you be using the open fermentation method? I sure will with this. <laughs> yeah, that's true, and I I do believe that it's somewhat strain dependent too. I I think that if you're going to like say use thirty seven eleven or something like that, you won't find uh, as yeah. much of of a difference. So, okay, Jeremiah, I'm going to let you get back to your exciting work day. But uh, thanks a lot for taking some time out to talk to us about the saison experiment. No problem. Thanks, Denny. All right, man. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. -bye. So uh, we heard Jeremiah's results on the experiment, and 
I got to tell you, in some ways I'm surprised, and in some ways I'm not surprised. Uh, he is, uh, his fermentation performance pretty much matched what Drew had found in terms of, uh, of airlock versus no airlock and attenuation versus less attenuation. But on the other hand, tasting, the beers seem to be remarkably similar. Uh, what do you think? I, well, I think that's pretty fascinating. One, it completely confirms Drew's theory, which, um, which we'll get to my results later. But um, the, the fact, if, if, I, if I heard correctly, he still has uh, the airlock batch sitting in the fermenter, and it's still slowly attenuating, yeah. right? So he's, he's comparing fermenting beer to uh, basically a finished beer, that, and they taste about the same. Um, that, to me, says a lot about how you know fermentation character isn't always the most defining aspect of a beer which is pretty pretty <laughs> and just really interesting to me well well and and you've seen i mean we've done experiments before and we've seen other ex- people's experiments where they talk about oh you know this beer had a radically different final gravity from the other sample and people still have a hard time picking it out i and for me i've always said I don't think this is necessarily uh, the technique is necessarily a flavor influencer as much as it is an ability to get the damn thing to finish. Yeah, I can hmm. I can see that for sure. Um, you know, and it is it is just fascinating to me, and definitely contrary to the conventional homebrew wisdom uh, that beers with such radically different final gravities or specific gravities, in the case of the one that isn't finished fermenting yet. Uh, can be so similar in flavor. So, I also think it. Uh, I think it also helps that the particular yeast strains that we're talking about are very big character producers. They have very distinctive characters, and those characters are all generated early in fermentation. So, what you've got is all those clove and spice and and other flavors that are in there from the very beginning, and now you're just getting to the point where you're shaving off kind of the final bits of sweetness. Because yeah, remember, right. he he did say that. Oh yeah, the second one, the second one tastes very similar, but it's yeah, still sweet right, a, a little bit. So, so Jeremiah had really dramatically different results, at least in the yeast performance in these two beers. But you didn't, huh, Marshall? No, and a little bit of self disclosure here. I'm not. I don't brew a lot of saison. You know, um, I I tend to stick with a lot of um, you know lager styles and and, and American ale. Um, so, so when I make a saison, I really want it to be good enough for me to want to drink since it's kind of unique that I have one on tap. Um, and so what I did is I, I did my best to follow, uh, the, the article over on the Malthus Falcons website that Drew put out a while ago, um, in terms of getting these results. And, and, uh, I'd never used the DuPont strain before, uh, either 565 or 3724, uh, so I didn't really know what to expect. And I'll admit, I kind of stayed away from it out of fear of this apparent issue. And I let them sit at, it was controlled to 64 degrees for three days before I came back and I started taking regular hydrometer uh, readings. Um, something I don't usually do, but I thought for this variable, it seemed prudent. Um, and so the very first hydrometer reading, both both uh, beers look to be right at about uh, 1025, 1026 specific gravity. So they were looking the same at this point. Uh, again, I think that that kind of goes in line as congruent with what Jeremiah found at first. Um, and then it, th- this is when I I bumped the regulator up to ninety degrees, but I didn't apply I didn't apply any heat. So I just let it, the exothermic uh, heat kind of bring it up on its own. 
uh, over time. And I came back, let's see, four days later, took another hydrometer reading. I also noted the, the temperature at this point to be 84 degrees. And at this point, there was a difference, but it was in the opposite direction <laughs> than what I expected. Dude, you screwed it up. <laughs> the foil cup. And this is when I started... Qu- I know it was totally my <laughs> fault. Uh, this is when I really started questioning all of the all of the information I've you know uh, I've absorbed from Master Drew, and uh, what, <laughs> what I found was that uh, so what, a full weekend basically the foil covered batch was at ten twelve specific gravity while the airlock batch was at ten ten so it had actually dropped two points lower uh, than the non back pressure uh, batch. I waited another four days and I came back and measured them again. Um, I had, I, I started applying heat as well to bring it up to 90 degrees. So now we're at what, 11 days and the foil batch had dropped to uh 10, 10 and the airlock batch was down at 10 07. So pretty, I don't, you know, in terms of, of, um, gravity measurements, that seems pretty, pretty yeah. different to me. Um, let's see here. Three more days. I took a lot of these hydrometer measurements. Um, Three days later, so I th- believe that's 14 days, two weeks total. The foil-covered batch was at 10.07. The airlock batch was at 10.05. They were both sitting at 90 degrees at this point. Everything else looked exactly the same. Uh, you know, the, the, just the nature of fermentation, the way the Kreuzen looked, all that stuff looked the same. Uh, I've, I finally, another three days, so we're at, what, 17 days now. Uh, I, I took a hydrometer measurement that showed the foil covered batch to be at 1006, the airlock covered batch to be at 1004. And then I confirmed no change in that three days later, uh, two or three days later. And so that's, it was at that point that I started to cold crash the beers. So one of the, one of the things I thought was interesting is that this is this beer, regardless of whether it was covered with foil or an airlock took a long time to ferment compared to what I'm normally seeing, you know, when I'm using other ale yeasts. Hmm. That is really, that so, is really so did, weird. Uh, you got any explanations for that, Drew? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Marshall Dunn. F- yeah. Uh, yeah. So now we had uh, three different sets of results coming from the Igors, uh, uh, specifically Matt Yoakum, uh, who is a new Igor, James K and uh, Jason Mundy all reported back in. And they had a total of uh, 35 uh, tasters. And this is just on the tasting results first, because, and we'll talk about why I don't think that these are the interesting part of the experiment, but they had 35 total tasters of the 35 uh, total tasters, 15 were able to correctly identify which beer had been, uh, which was the different beer in the triangle testing, uh, which actually puts it below the point of significance because we would need 17 in order Mm -hmm. to get it uh, a significant finding. Now, so that means, okay, great. Our, our tasters couldn't tell the difference between the two beers reliably. And I'm okay with that because again, to go back to the point of what we were talking about, I consider this to be more of a, uh, of a technique for production. And is there a difference with the, the production? So what we see coming out almost invariably, I think with each of the, uh, each of the experimenters, and I'm just going to pull the, uh, pull up the notes here real quick we see that they all had the same sort of reaction where they actually were seeing differences between uh, the fermentation performance. Uh, right. Too. Um, to the point where uh, all of them uh, are basically going, huh, I guess maybe this is how I should do it. 
Uh, so, Marshall, you're the real um, outlier here, buddy. But <laughs> yeah, um, I, I I think uh, I, I think the best experiment, uh, the best results that we had were from people going. I'm really really surprised that this made a difference. I, I'm fascinated. I on I, I right. the, obviously this is the first I've seen of your guys's data, the Igor's data at least, and uh, he, and and hearing about that just absolutely. I I thought everyone would experience what I did, but. I, and I have no, I have no good excuse. I have no good. The beers both tasted exactly the same. The obvious answer is uh, you suck uh, as a brewer. Generally enjoyed by everyone who drank it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that. I, <laughs> <we've> all- <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, it's fun to tease Marshall, and, and but we know he doesn't really suck as a brewer. Uh, but really interesting uh, uh, results on that one, huh? Yeah, and since we recorded, we actually have had more results come in. And I think at the moment, we're now at six total results in, five of which saw the stall on the airlock batch, and the only one that didn't was Marshall. So again, Marshall <laughs> is even more of an outlier now. And really? I actually I actually just today got a message on Reddit from a, a user on there by the name of Nate. And Nate had actually posted a question about, a saison they had that had stalled out and i replied to it saying remove the airlock just remove the airlock give it a gentle swirl and put some foil over it and you'll be fine and he said if this works if this technique works because he didn't believe it was going to necessarily he was going to name the beer drew is a saison god and so today today uh nate actually uh messaged me and asked or said hey by the way I, it worked, and I just cracked my first bottle last night, and it turned out great. It is hereby named Drew is a Saison God. All so, right, man. As as I'm if a, we didn't know that already, huh? Yes, as if my ego didn't need more stroking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, that was a that was a cool experiment, and I'm glad to hear the results. And uh, you know, who knows? Maybe the fact that Marshall opened his fermenter so often to take 82 gravity samples was kind of the same thing as open fermenting. Yeah. Well, particularly if you think that uh, Jeremiah has a point about CO2 toxicity instead of the back pressure thing. I mean, I think the real takeaway on it is open fermentation and saisons seem to go together like peanut butter and jelly. Right. And I, uh, just real quick, I want to say that uh, that uh, that clip started with us talking to uh, my good friend and fellow member of the Cascade Brewers Society, Jeremiah Marsden. Uh, Jeremiah, thanks for participating in the experiment and talking to us. So we don't get to do a, a show together very often. Uh, as a lot of you probably know, I'm sitting up here in the foothills of the Coast Range Mountains in Oregon. Drew is down there in California in Posadena. So, so uh, you know, most of our shows are done long distance. But this year at Homebrew Con in Baltimore, we actually had a chance to get together and do a live show from uh, the booth of our friends at Brewcraft. And uh, once again, we were talking to Marshall and participating in a uh, live blind triangle tasting that he had set up there. So uh, here we go. We'll listen to Drew and me being fooled again. Marshall, come on over and sit down here, buddy. All right. So now, uh, for those of you uh, who uh, may be weirdly unaware, or maybe you've never listened to the podcast, or you've never, you've never spent any time on the internet, uh, Marshall is uh, sort of our comrade in science. 
and it comes on the podcast, helps us out from time to time. And by the way, not only is this the first time that Denny and I have been in the same room during the podcast, this is the first time all three of us have out there on the podcast. Right, it feels so good. This is a monumental <laughs> I know, moment, man. The clouds are parting, Denny. <laughs> this, is, this is too cold. <laughs> but is that the clouds are parting like the clouds are parting and the sun is coming through? Or the clouds are parting and it's the end of the world like Ghostbusters? That's, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, all right. We, we love having Marshall on the show, man. He's a lot of fun and we all kind of like have the same philosophy about brewing. So, uh, all right, so now Marshall has dropped three glasses in front of us. And, three multi-pastel colored uh, and, and And his his brewing comrade in arms, Malcolm, is standing off in the corner, I think, stand, getting ready to make fun of us for doing this wrong. <laughs> well, and, and to cut you off, Ed Coffey uh, from AlesOfTheRiverWards.com is the brewer of these beers. There you go, Ed. Um, so makes some of the best hoppy beers I've had from yeah. a homebrewer. Great stuff. There we go. All right. So, now, we know absolutely jack-all about what's going on here in the glasses. Oh, oh good catch, Marshall. <laughs> Marshall has, obviously, the, the incredible superior reflexes of a beer ninja. Someone... Someone lubed that bottle, I'm telling you. Is it more impressive that he dropped it in the first place or that he caught it after? <laughs> it's more impressive that he caught it. Because uh, uh, I think that was one of Nikki's bottles that just uh, kind of went a little haywire over here. All right, so we have three glasses in front of us, a blue, a red, and a green. We know nothing about them. And now Denny and I are going to do the classic triangle test and decide which one is different. All right? Do it. So Marshall, uh, you need to vamp while I was trying to think of how I can make fun of you guys right now. Uh, talk about how we look like uh, somebody from Sideways. <laughs> you look so svelte, my friend. Let's talk about your weight again. <laughs> 113 pounds strong. Ooh, ah, there you go, man. Wow, really? So this is kind of... Yeah, what, so the beer... I, every time I pick up a glass, I'm going, I think I've got a different... Uh, oh, that's the one that's Yep. Yeah, I will say that uh, the variable on this one uh, is is something that's been talked about quite a bit lately uh, in the homebrew world, and uh, oh, I think no. <laughs> oh no, I think it's he I may know where this is going, <laughs> and uh, I think it's relevant for both Ed and my websites. Um, well, don't give us any more hints. I'm not. That's it. That's all, okay. as far as I'm going. I am. I'm ready to make a choice. Are you going public with your choice? Oh, do I have to say? I don't know. <laughs> I know. I know the right. I know the right answer, so I can tell you if you're right or wrong. Um, we are I, done collecting data after this. So are you? Are you? Uh, are you ready to decide, Drew? Give me one more minute. The, the, the vamp some sort of. See, he's, I think here's what you do. He's really not thinking about the beer. He's just drinking. So you gotta. I am Irish. So that you don't change your mind, you guys need to write the color down privately here. Hey, that's hey, Marshall those cards is now cost tearing us. up our advertising. <laughs> no, I'm going to keep that one. Sign it when you're done. <laughs> this this is this like a stout porter? Yeah, it's v- a milk stout. Milk stout, it's so good. I know, Nikki, Nikki. Marshall loves your milk stout. It's fantastic. Thank you for sharing it. All right. Now here here's the fun part about all this. We now get to look like idiots because I'm assuming. None of us are getting it right. And I, Drew and I both pick different beers. So. Does Denny have? Did I give you mine? Oh yeah. Bum 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 bum. And, these are, and those are the two I was choosing between. So, 
uh, we're done collecting data. Let's call it, and we'll, we'll let you guys know what we did. So what, what did you think it was? Did you think you could guess, Denny, what we were doing? Um, I, you know, basically, from the comments you made, I would guess it was low oxygen. No? Oh. Uh, the other thing that I, I mean, but before, before that, I thought maybe it was like a New England IPA kind of thing. You're right. I detected a softer hop character in the green beer than in the other two. Okay. It, we, this is a New England IPA, uh, modeled after Hop Hands, Ed? Yeah, Tired Hands. Tired Hands, yeah. More like a pale ale. Pale ale, yeah. And so, there's been a lot of talk lately about the impact of fining on... Ah, this is gelatin versus... Versus nothing. All right. But in a New England IPA. Now, one of the things New England IPA is kind of known for is being made with a high percentage of oats in the grist. Um, and that, and, and I, so this is kind of a, a two-way experiment here. I wanted to see what the impact of gelatin would be on that, that oat haze. And... Um, Side by side, they, they look about the same, actually, and it's, they're hazy. They didn't clear up. But interestingly... Um, Neither th- got the right one. Did no, 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 you didn't. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, I was going to say, now that I've looked at them visually, yeah. which is what you're not supposed to do during a triangle test. Unless, <laughs> which is why they were served no pink cups. Yeah, exactly. 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 You, look at, you look at green and blue, which is the two that Day and I chose, and they look identical that way. And then you look at red, and red does look different, so... I have failed, and so has Denny. We are terrible people. <laughs> so, so it was red that was the beer that was different. Nobody will ever believe a single thing we say again. No, <laughs> they already before. don't, Denny. No, I was going to say, does <laughs> yeah, anybody believe a single thing we say? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah and, and this is why it's important to do this, is because, to me, like, I got down to this point where I felt like, okay, so red... Red and, uh, red and green, to me, felt like they had a sharper bitterness. And that's why I chose blue, because blue felt softer. And green felt softer to me. Yeah, which obviously means that you and I both got messed up in our tastings because we crossed over these things. All right? Boy. See, and I just want to point out that all of you homebrewers out there who go, oh, yeah, man, I changed this in my beer, and it's way better. You probably don't really know that, you know? <laughs> and I don't Fighting words. To, I don't want to insult anybody. But uh, I say that from my own experience, you know, that I have discovered that uh, unless I do something like this, I can't tell. And even when I do something like this, I may not be able to tell. And, I, and, and side by side, I think uh, Malcolm, Ed, and I all kind of blindly tested ourselves, and neither of us got it either. Yeah. So oh, well, they, they, I, feel, I feel better about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm, I'm one of a large group of idiots. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Idiots unite! I, I think what's curious though is that you know the gelatin is going to pull stuff out. It just didn't yeah. pull out whatever haze causing uh, stuff from oats, the right. proteins from oats right. out. Fine. Um, and side by side, they do look a little different, like you like you noticed, Drew. Um, but I think what's interesting is that it doesn't. It's what we're finding so far over a series of these experiments is that finding with gelatin doesn't seem to cause a noticeable impact compared to finding with nothing, uh, finding with Biofine or Clarity well, Firm. Now, that's a noticeable impact to flavor and aroma. Flavor and aroma, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The perceptible stuff that's not appearance. Yeah, yeah, so it's cool. I, I, I'll keep using it. All right, so hey, uh, real quick out there in the audience, is anybody surprised by this? Yeah, because it is, you know, one of these things, people are like, oh, hey, no, you got to be careful with gelatin. Gelatin strips your hop character. So anybody surprised? How many... Uh, <laughs> All right. 
so everybody who's not out there, because it's hard to hear, you can't hear anything from the audience, but Ed is now saying, this is how it started, because we all said this was good. Oh, no, Gelatin's going to do this, right? Right, exactly, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. So now that's why you do this experiment. And by the way, this is why you do these experiments, or why we do these experiments between uh, Marshall's crew and our crew, uh, just to have some fun and, and put out some information that might be possibly useful to people. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, with, with you know a lot of people, especially homebrewers, are, you know, who cares if it's hazy or not? But some of us are more vain, and we like pretty beer. Or we view clear, clear beer as being prettier. And, well, hey, if I mean, it's not going to change the flavor of the beer, which we haven't found it to. Yeah, you know? But let's face it. Some of us, the only pretty we can ever achieve is in our beer. Yeah, amen. That's yeah. true, man. That's true, yeah. <laughs> and, well, and then the people wife. we marry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, look, I'm happy I'm married because I don't ever have to worry about pretty, being pretty ever again. <laughs> Marshall, thanks a whole Hey, thanks a lot, guys. And thanks for brewing the beers, thanks, buddy. Sorry for spilling the beer over here. <laughs> oh, man. That was so much fun, and you know what? It's a, a really good example of why you want to do a blind triangle test when you're trying some uh, new techniques on beers, huh? Well, and particularly why you want to do those opaque cups. Now, obviously, there's that other question of, okay, so it didn't impact the taste, but you know, if you do do clear cups, because let's face it, we do drink and taste with our eyes, I'm sure that you'd see an impact in terms of people's preference on those things. So that's kind of the one problem with the opaque cup, right? We can determine that, hey, it didn't make a difference on the flavor, but it, it sure as hell still made a difference in the in the uh, appearance. Cause I remember looking down at those cups after we were done and going, damn it. I chose the wrong one. <laughs> and I, you know, I made a real effort not to do that because I figured if they were being uh, served in opaque cups, then uh, the idea was that you wanted to discount the appearance of it. But oh, you know, absolutely. And that's, I didn't look at the, the beer until after I'd made my choice. And yeah, at, at that point in time was just that realization of, mm. <laughs> Well, hopefully we can uh, pull off another one of those shows this summer in Minneapolis, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and really, if you're at HomebrewCon, you should come and uh, stop by and see us. Last year, we did it at the uh, BrewCraft booth, and I imagine we'll be back there again. Uh, because, I don't know about you, I think it's more fun when we get a chance to do a show together. Yeah, and it's really fun when we get to uh, interact with our listeners. So, again, if you're at HomebrewCon uh, in Minneapolis this summer, uh, we will be recording a live show again. So, come on by. Start thinking up some questions for us right now. Uh, we, we want something difficult uh, so that we can look like even bigger idiots than we usually do. <laughs> Speaking of looking like bigger idiots... Our last interview today goes back to uh, episodes six and seven, an interview that was so big that it <laughs> sprawled out over two episodes. Uh, Drew and I had a chance to uh, head down to the Bay Area with Jonathan Etley from Craftmeister. And uh, while we were there, we stopped in at a bunch of breweries, talked to a bunch of people. And uh, one of the more entertaining interviews was with Roger Davis at Faction. Yeah, uh, Roger is notoriously uh, voluminous with his uh, talk, <laughs> yeah. and I, I and I don't think Denny has ever had to reach for the bleep button faster or more often than with this particular interview. Yep, there's plenty of bleeps in there. But uh, what, but what but, I do love what I do love about Roger is he has a ton of really great stories and a 
ton, a ton of brewing knowledge and a ton of very strong brewing opinions uh, wrapped up in there. And thanks to the fact that he's not shy, it's very, very easy for you to get them out of him. <laughs> That's right. So uh, we're going to hear Roger talking about uh, how he got into brewing, uh, his training at Siebel, and uh, some of his thoughts on recipe design and uh, especially white stout. So uh, let's take a listen to Roger here. Hey, everybody uh, who's listening on the podcast. Uh, we're here right now at... Uh, no, no, it's recorded. Oh, thank God. Yeah. So uh, we are here at uh, Faction Brewing in Alameda, uh, off by the old uh, Naval and Marine Corps Air Station uh, in the middle of San Francisco Bay. And we are currently sitting in a room overlooking the whole of Roger's domain uh, over across the, the brewery and everything else. Anyways, uh, this is actually where we're sitting, which Drew was explaining, is the old uh, commander's office. Oh, cool. And it only smells a little bit like mold. Well, that's the commander. <laughs> Old moldy and on the bay. That's still here. Exactly. So, first things first, to our audience who have, may not have ever heard your voice before, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. A little bit of biography and everything else. Well, uh, my name's Roger Davis, uh, brewer at Faction Brewing Company, and uh, that's all I got. All right, well, and I think... <laughs> Here, people. Yeah. All right, and I think uh, Denny, what are you? Uh, what are you over here with? Uh, this is the uh, red. What's the official name, Roger? Uh, it's called Red. Red. Oh, good. So Faction Red. Cool. Well, I got no, it right. It, that's the official name. Is Faction yeah. Red? Okay. Right. So, it, so and it's damn good. Yeah. Well. And then, and then I have your. At least it's not f- good. <laughs> well, it's. F- are you allowed good. to cuss, by the way? Sure. Uh, yeah. Right. We'll bleep if we have to. All right. And then I have your your. Your hop series, and I forget the, the name of it, but this is the one with Delta and Comet. Oh, uh, the two hop. A hop two, two pale or a hop, yeah. two hop. Two hop. All right. Jesus so, Christ, you've been here for an hour and a half. Well, I've been having a couple of your beers, man. <laughs> so, uh, and the, the two hop here and the Delta and Comet, you said the Comet, interestingly enough, is from 1973 back in the same vintage as Cascade. Uh, I wouldn't say 73 as. Uh, her proper year, but uh, it was back in the Ish. 70s, and I think it was like 73, 74 when they started putting it in the ground. Yeah. So, and ish. Ish. Let's go with the ish. And by the way, Drew is doing the, what is this called? Air quotes. Bun- air quotes. Bunny, bunny ears? <laughs> bunny, bunny ears, air quotes, whatever. What's, uh, what's this guy laughing at? I think he just thinks we're funny. Either that, or he's amused by the fact there's no snow on the ground. And <laughs> over here in the corner is uh, Jonathan uh, from Craftmeister, who has been uh, uh, very kind to shuttle Danny and, around, uh, Danny and I around uh, the Bay Area uh, on this little trip. So uh, Jonathan's over in the corner being a nice, quiet presence, uh, enjoying the view. Because, frankly, if we turn around right now from where I'm looking, there are these massive windows behind me that have this absolutely unprecedented half a billion dollar view onto the San Francisco skyline. I would say a billion. Yeah. Well, of course you would. You're trying to pump up your business, buddy. But I'm dumb and not stupid. <laughs> Were you a home brewer? Yes. I started home brewing in 1990. Okay. And what got you into home brewing? Well, that's a funny little story. Uh, <laughs> We're all so essentially, I, um, you can't see it, but uh, 
was on Grateful Dead tour. Denny's favorite band. That's right. Oh, Denny's favorite band. You, yeah. you, can, you should see the look on his face and the talk from earlier tonight. So we were uh, we were on um, a buddy of mine. We're on uh, excuse me on uh, tour and uh, of the Grateful Dead. And uh, we met up with some Canadians. So we were uh, we we're actually at the the Marin Headlands, which uh, is this great place where you can camp for free. And basically, it's right on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge. You can see the Golden Gate Bridge. It was awesome, except for the fact that it was, there was just winds like the size of seventy miles per hour. So we were just like slammed in our Volkswagen bus and um, these two Canadians came over and they were like hey what's going on you know and they're like what the hell are you guys doing out here the, and we asked them uh, we invited them into our Volkswagen bus and we were just hanging out and like we were playing uh, checkers I think it was and uh, they started and this is in 1990, 1990, period. And uh, they started telling me about how they make beer up in Canada. Like how they make it at home. And I was just like, what? And I'm like dumbfounded by this whole thing. Just completely dumbfounded. My parents won't, won't, won't actually never hear this. So I was f***ing tripping on acid. Oh. <laughs> I was like, weren't we all in that? No, my buddy and I decided, like, you know, hey, we're we're sitting here, it's fucking freezing out. Let's just go ahead and take a couple hits because we're on, you know, in between shows, and so we're just like in left field waiting for a month. I was gonna say, and, and by the way, for everybody who can't see Roger's expression, which is everybody who's listening. To, uh, that was a little bit of a screwball, bitter beer face over to the left and over to the right and then back down again before uh, coming to reality. Am I here yet? <laughs> exactly. I'm just kidding. Um, but b- bottom line is uh, they just explained to us how to brew beer and I was just like, wow, this is, this is the most amazing thing that I've ever heard of because I like beer. And this... I wouldn't say epiphany, but it was just like this. And I kept the- asking them all these questions because they kept saying like, "Oh yeah, you bring it, you bring water to a, a boil, and you add these malts, and you know this is 1990, so no one really knew like how to do all grain. Maybe they knew how to do it, but they weren't explaining it. You know, and they're like, oh, and then you add your hops, and I was just like." And suddenly Roger got introduced to his favorite ingredient ever, hops. <laughs> hops. No, I was introduced that earlier, the <laughs> cousin of. <laughs> but uh, it, it was just the most amazing thing that I've ever heard in my life. And I was just like, wow. Uh, and I kept asking them, like, how do I do this? How do I do this when I go back down to Orange County? And they said, you know, this is way before the internet, people. Uh, look in the yellow pages under winemaking. And I, I was living in Huntington Beach at the time and went back 
licked under the the uh, winemaking, and sure enough, there's a place in Orange called Fun Fermentations, mm-hmm. and I just got in my Volkswagen bus and I drove right over there, and I took a buddy of mine with me. I got the starter kit. Uh, uh, who was the guy? Carl? Kurt. Carl. Uh, was it Kurt? Uh, I can't remember actually. Right big, now, big guy? Yep. Uh, and uh, unfortunately dying, but sorry. Don't we all? <laughs> Eventually, but mm-hmm. uh, talked to him and he's like, here you go. And set me on my way. And one of the funniest things was because uh, I was 19 at the time, maybe 20. And uh, my buddy was just like, dude, I'm gonna, I'm gonna laugh at you when you get busted, when we get pulled over with all this beer. But we all, we only had the ingredients. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, do you want me to carry on with the story? Well, or? It, it, but perfectly legal to have just the ingredients. Yeah. No, I know, I, I know it's legal. Yep. That's what they said to me. They are like, are you 18? <laughs> Maybe. Do you want me to carry on with the story? Or? Oh, yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Go, go, go. So, uh, basically went home and uh, brewed the beer, and it sucked. It sucked out loud. I was just like, this is the most disgusting thing I've ever brewed. Or not brewed, but ever. Why am I doing this? And you, but per- we you had, persevered. We persevered because we were drinking anchors and... Sierra Nevadas and um, then after that it was like wow we had fun doing that let's do it again it may have sucked but damn it we had a good time doing it exactly and we did it again and we did it again and they all sucked but it was having fun you know it was didn't matter and then finally it was uh, uh, sorry I was gonna say what marked the turning point from hey this sucked to suddenly it didn't suck uh, it never did back in the day in Huntington <laughs> I think the, uh, the, the, the 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 biggest thing that like hit me was uh, so I'm sitting there watching TV with a bunch of buddies at the house in Huntington and uh, we hear these explosions like, why are you guys laughing at me? Because we know where this is going. <laughs> three old, three older brothers sitting around a table, all just losing their losing their crap. So I, I, um, so I'm sitting there and we're watching TV and like, bam! What the f- was that? Everyone runs around. Uh, it was most of my roommates, uh, and they checked their windows because we thought it was like, you know, just some window that decided to like fall out of the building. Building that we were in was pretty old, but so we're sitting there, and uh, we came back, and that no, so it wasn't my window. It wasn't bottles exploding, uh, exploding yet. Um, and that was my second brew, so yeah. So everyone was running around checking out their windows, and I was like, "Wow, I don't know what the fuck's going on." And everyone's like, "What the fuck?" 
two times it happened, three times. Then all of a sudden it was like, time to go check the brew. Mason took you three times. And I was like, oh, found out why the windows were ex quote unquote, why they were exploding. We were all running around like we didn't know what the f was going on and uh, turns out uh, it was the beer because I put it in the fridge and this is our second second batch because I had a couple friends that were uh, quote unquote helping me they, they immediately dismissed themselves from helping me yeah. <laughs> but they probably want to be my friends now even though I haven't talked to them in a long time some of them yeah. well, most the, of the, them I have the, there's always a thing about homebrewers friends like hey I'm helping you out with the batch you're not helping me out. You're drinking my beer, asshole. It's asshole Oh, uh, well, sorry, asshole <laughs> It's French. <laughs> oui, oui. Oh, oh, it's Spanish. <laughs> well, but uh, basically, what at the end of the day, uh, ended up opening these bottles, and they were literally like all the way. I would say ten feet up, and just spraying down it wasn't like 10 feet up and then coming back down by itself it was 10 feet up to hit the ceiling to come cascading back down so what happens with Siebel is basically they teach you everything that you need to know about brewing <laughs> but at the end of the day they don't teach you about recipe formulation so much when I was there this guy um, who I madly respect, Christopher Bird, taught us how to do recipe formulation. But at the end of the day, you don't know what recipe formulation is until you get your hands on the ingredients and your hands into the actual brew house. Mm -hmm. You know? Well, it's, it's book knowledge versus hands-on knowledge. Exactly. It's street knowledge as opposed to book knowledge so so when you're out there brewing every day which one of those do you draw on most is there one that's more important than the other or they balance out i would go street yeah because uh the bottom line is uh what you want to do in brewing is realize what your system is um and if you're there every day, I mean, a lot of home brewers don't, don't work on their system every day. So, and to be honest with you, we learn a lot from home brewers because we're all home brewers to heart, but those guys, you guys, whatever, home brewers can actually, you know, hey, this Maris Otter, uh, as opposed to the regular pale ale with the same hopping can do present this and We can't do that because we're looking more at consistency of how we're gonna make our beers and you, Once you once you know your system You you realize that you know, hey this this hops not gonna work with that or this and um do yeah. you do you brew for yourself or do you brew for the customers? We brew for ourselves. Right on, buddy. <laughs> that's that's a really. Yeah. I mean, why why I mean, if I'm not making beer that I like, 
then why am I making beer? When Denny and I went to go write experimental homebrew, I was responsible for a lot of the wacky recipes because that's who I am. And one of the ones I introduced him to was the idea, uh, and I said, we're putting this one in the book, and it was a white stout. And, and I he, screamed, and I screamed, and said, no, you can't have a white stout. Now, until recently, I've never admitted to Denny that... Seriously, the, we're going to talk about this? Yes, we are, because we're going to have to. I've never admitted to Denny the entire reason why I have a white stout in my repertoire is due to you. And your anomaly. <laughs> so it's not it's not my anomaly. It's not your anomaly? <laughs> no, that's that's what we're calling it at faction. Right. Continue on with the question. Well so now where did the white stout come from then? Steve. Steve at uh uh high water. Steve Altamari. Good friend, love him to death. He and I were sitting at the, the festival one day, and uh, he basically said, hey, let's do a collaboration. And I was at Triple Rock at the time, and uh, I said, yeah, sure. Well, I don't know what this collaboration thing is, but all right, let's do it. And uh, he said, or collaborate, and I was like, Actually, he said it. Steve. Steve Altamari is the brains behind this whole thing. I give him total credit. And blame. And he said, how do we do this? And he looked at me and he was like, let's do a white stout. And I was like, I don't know what the f*** that means. That's the same reaction I had. And... Fast forward to uh, a month and a half later when uh, Julian, who was a homebrewer at the time, but Julian Trigo, who's now with Beachwood. Julian is uh, Julian's awesome, and uh, so Julian calls me up. He's like, "Hey, let's do a uh, uh, Gabe wants to do something for um, the fourth anniversary of uh, uh, Beachwood Seal Beach." This is before Long Beach opened. I was like, "Yeah, let's do it." Uh, we were thinking like a like a white stout. And I was like, "Dude, I was just thinking about this for like the last two weeks, three weeks." You know, it's like, how do you make a stout and a not stout. not be a stout? And how do you just do that mind play on people? And uh, they wanted to do an imperial, um, so all these ideas started coming up, and unfortunately, we never brought Steve into the equation. Uh, Steve's idea was essentially what made it, made this this beer. He was the impetus, or the yeah. the, the seed. Yeah, he he was like, let's make a white style, and I was like, I don't know. That means, man. So, uh, so to Steve, he's a dad. Oh, where's the Steve? No, Altamari, uh, just, uh, and I, I have to give him mad respect, man. So, Gabe and uh, Julian came up and brewed a beer at Triple Rock for the fourth anniversary, and we did an imperial, 
and it came out too dark. It came out too dark, and by dark I mean it like came out like orangey. Yeah, it was a little bit orangey, a little bit less than orangey, if you will. So, what, like too much coffee and chocolate, or no? That was just the color of the malt. Oh. Uh, it was ill oh, because of the extra color from the the extra pale, like just the just the sheer amount of malt. Sheer amount of malt. We basically uh, uh, brewed that beer, and uh, what we're doing with the anomaly here is uh, just basic two row and whatever you can possibly do to get that uh, crystal malt taste that a stout would have. And then moving forward to a uh, to a, to a little bit of mouthfeel. Uh, what we're doing is uh, uh, the lactose sugar, mm-hmm. and then uh, just lightly hopping it. I mean, going from there with just take what you would take. I mean, honestly, to 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 figure out like. All the flavors that you get from a stout, take that and use it in your mind to figure out how you can get it from not using that. Well, I, the I, dark malts. Well, and I think this is how I finally sold Denny on the idea. Was I pitched it to him as it, it, it's the same thing as like when you see a, a modern chef do food deconstruction, right? How do I how do I give you the same sensations in a different presentation? Yeah. And so, you know, we think stout, we think coffee, chocolate, and a couple other things coming from those roasted malts. Deconstructed. So, yeah. So deconstructed and then reconstruct in a different configuration. So instead of going for the dark things that are giving you those same flavors, go for a paler version that give you the same flavors. So you get cold brew coffee, you get, you know, cacao yeah. nibs, you get that sort of stuff to give you those sensations, but without giving you the color. Exactly. Yeah. All right, well, so that was Roger, and I mean, come on, you have to admit that that guy is a card and a half, and uh, just I mean, he is a great a great ball of energy to be around with all yeah, of those he stories, is. and he's a great brewer, man. The beers were fantastic, and in spite of all the uh, the screwing around and, and jokey talk, Roger knows what he's doing and has a wealth of information. Yeah, he really does. And I mean, I could very easily spend even more time uh, with Roger, uh, if nothing else, to hear him, you know, threaten Jonathan about, you know, sitting in the corner of the room or uh, getting, <laughs> getting upset about me uh, talking about him driving a forklift or talking about gin or talking about other beers and new hops. I mean, really, the man is a, a hell of a a hell of a promoter of craft beer. And really, really great to to hang out with and learn from. Yep, he's a he's a fun guy to sit there and drink beer with for a couple hours for sure, or uh, maybe more than a couple hours in that particular instance. Oh boy, yeah, and that was uh, that was definitely that was definitely a good time. <laughs> it was indeed. So uh, that pretty much wraps up our anniversary show. Listening back to some of our favorite favorite episodes. Uh, we want before we uh, go out by listening to a, a sing along from uh, HomebrewCon this year, <laughs> the only known recording of Drew singing. 
we just mm-hmm. want to really thank you all for joining us for the last year for the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at Experimental Brew. We're on Facebook, and uh, we're on tons of different beer forums on there. I'm uh, on most of them, and Drew handles Reddit for us. So if you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can get a hold of us there, or you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. If you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at Experimental Brew, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. Come back in two more weeks. We'll have another episode for you. And until then, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And like we said, we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Oh, and hey, before we forget, we're running a survey because we've been doing this for one year without any of your feedback. And now we need your feedback. So if you can, go to experimentalbrew.com slash survey and leave us your thoughts on our first year of the show and where you want us to go in the second year. And hey, while you're also at it and leaving your thoughts around... Leave us a review in iTunes or wherever it is that you download your podcast from. It really actually helps people find us. So thank you. And now, I guess we got to sing. <laughs> I guess we do. And dance, too. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. It's just about time. It's just about time. It's about time. We talk about beer, so come on in, so come on in, just come on in, pour yourself a beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 Now the world has been traumatized by hearing me sing. All right.